Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk about the purpose and scope of the podcast and lay some of the foundation for most of the issues we discuss through the various episodes. And if you are not new to the podcast and you're finding it enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, and consider posting a review or a plug on social media. This is actually the last episode of the second season, marking 25 episodes, and exactly one year since we began on Bastille Day of July of 2020. It started out as something of an experimental project in the midst of the pandemic, but it has now been listened to over 17,000 times in over 100 countries. So thanks to all of you who have become regular listeners and have made it something of a success. I hope to be back with a third season in the fall after a short break this summer. Our guest today is Asle Bali, professor of law at UCLA, who specializes in both public international law and comparative constitutional law with a focus on the Middle East. She's written widely on USAD Bellum, nuclear nonproliferation, and international human rights issues, among other things, and teaches a seminar on the laws of war. Today, however, we're going to be discussing an issue that is not typically considered to be within the scope of the laws of war, but which we discuss as having some relationship with that area of law. The topic is economic sanctions, and Asle recently published an essay in the Boston Review, co-authored with Aziz Rana, which condemned comprehensive economic sanctions regimes such as those that are imposed against Iran, Venezuela, and Cuba as being both inhumane and counterproductive. Now, their argument was largely policy-oriented, but I thought it would be interesting to discuss the legal issues raised by economic sanctions, and in particular some of the ironies and paradoxes raised by the increasing reliance on sanctions as a supposed alternative to the use of force in enforcing international law, For as we explore in our discussion, sanctions are indeed often thought of as a peaceful means of pressuring other states to alter course, often indeed for enforcing compliance with human rights obligations, and there is perhaps insufficient debate over the lawful limits on sanctions and when they may indeed become unlawful. For comprehensive sanctions in particular can cause harm to the population and to the economy on a scale that if caused by other means, such as a siege in wartime, a naval blockade, or even cyber operations, could implicate the laws of war and arguably be unlawful. So we dive into some of these issues surrounding the lawfulness of economic sanctions, how we might think about their relationship with some of the legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict. But before we get into the conversation, I thought it might be useful to clarify a few points about the terms used and the different forms that economic sanctions take, because we don't necessarily explain those in the conversation fully. First off, by economic sanctions, we're talking about various measures states may take to apply pressure to the government of another state. And these include trade sanctions, which involve limited trade restrictions such as arms embargoes, or can comprise complete embargoes of virtually all trade with the target state. They can include financial sanctions in the form of freezing of assets and prohibiting of any financial transactions with the target state or any entity within it. They involve travel restrictions or complete travel bans on the nationals of the target state. Economic sanctions typically involve a mix of all of these, uh, and they may be comprehensive or limited and targeted. Indeed, sanctions may be narrowly targeted, so-called smart sanctions, in that they can target specific individuals within the regime or those who are thought to have influence on the target regime. You may recall the 
Majinsky laws that targeted oligarchs in Russia as a way of trying to pressure the Russian government. Another term we use is secondary sanctions. The secondary sanctions refer to the employment of economic sanctions against third states, that is states other than the target state, or persons and entities that are not nationals of the target state, for the purpose of deterring them from engaging in trade or financial transactions with the target state. Listeners will recall the famous Helms-Burton Act, which targeted any state, person, or entity that engaged in prohibited trade with Cuba. Finally, sanctions can be distinguished between those that are authorized by the United Nations or some other regional organization like the uh, European Union and those that are not. Unauthorized sanctions are often referred to as unilateral or autonomous sanctions. I personally prefer the term autonomous since many unauthorized sanctions regimes are indeed multilateral. But it is these unauthorized sanctions regimes that raise the most obvious questions of lawfulness and legitimacy. So in our conversation here, we're primarily talking about comprehensive autonomous sanctions regimes that often include secondary sanctions against any state that tries to break the embargo, all of which results in significant harm to the target economy and to the population of the target state. So with that, let us dive into the conversation. Well, Asla Bali, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Craig. It's a pleasure. Well, before we dive into the substance of our discussion, as I think you gathered from previous episodes, I've been asking most of the guests to the podcast to share something a little more personal about themselves, their bio, something that perhaps even your colleagues might not know about you. So one thing that came to mind as I thought about this question is that I have a deep passion for a particular kind of coffee. So as a law student, as a basically really incredibly innocent in some ways student. It didn't occur to me that having 16 cups of coffee a day and garnishing it with Advil (laughs) would result in a stomach ulcer, which it did do. And I had this really intense love of coffee. And so eventually I had to moderate it and draw back to one very sort of regulated coffee a day. But the quality of that coffee really matters to me. So I found the absolutely perfect place in Los Angeles that makes espresso exactly the way I love it. And I would go there as a personal trek every single day, seven days a week to my husband's consternation about our budget (laughs) until the pandemic hit. And then when the pandemic hit, I was in a real emergency. And so we have cycled through maybe half a dozen home efforts to try to address my need for the perfect espresso one time a day. And we have finally landed upon the correct formula, which involves a grinder at home beans purchased from the roaster that was used by my beloved cafe in LA, a manual lever espresso machine, which involves actual physical labor, serious physical labor, but produces an exquisite espresso once a day for me. And it's to the point where even as Los Angeles opens back up, it is going to be a toss up whether I return to my cafe because the home espresso has been perfected to such a, to such a point. Although I am a great lover of the cafe and of small businesses, so I may well go back if they ever open again prior to 11 in the morning, which they have not done as yet. And I can't wait till 11 for my espresso. So for now, my uh, pandemic-induced expertise continues to serve its purpose. Wow. Well, as a lover of espresso myself, I think we're going to have to post links to both the cafe and your espresso machine on the website. (laughs) (laughs) And I sympathize with your quest for the the perfect espresso. But turning to the the discussion at hand, I mean, we could talk about a number of different aspects of your work, as you've done work relating to the laws of war in a number of different ways. But recently, you co-authored with Aziz Rana 
an essay in the Boston Review on economic sanctions. And we're also on a Quincy Institute webinar with Peter Beinhardt and others, similarly talking about the human rights impact of economic sanctions. And I've been myself thinking recently about the relationship or possible relationship between economic sanctions and the laws of war broadly defined and how international law treats these different forms of state action quite differently. And since you're well-versed in both areas of the law, I thought you could help us think about that relationship or explore whether indeed there is a relationship. So perhaps the best place to start would be with your argument in the Boston Review on the inhumanity and human rights impacts of economic sanctions, and we can sort of take it from there. Sounds great. Thank you, Craig. So the main point that we were making, the article was written in the context of the pandemic and was a response to an escalation of sanctions on the part of the United States against Iran under the Trump administration willfully invoking the pandemic as a basis to further enhance their maximum pressure campaign in full knowledge of the fact that the sanctions, the additional sanctions that were being imposed would impede the ability of the Iranian government to access protective equipment, medicines, all kinds of vital supplies in the context of a pandemic and at a moment when Iran itself had become an epicenter in the region in the Middle East and many of the cases of COVID, the preliminary cases, last year in the spring were actually traced to Iran across the region, were being traced to Iran. And so it was not only contained to Iran itself, but the region as a whole was suffering from the pandemic as a consequence of the deprivations that were being imposed on the Iranian people. And so the claim we wanted to make in the piece, and the piece was very much focused on policy questions, was that sanctions are not at all the way they're presented, a humane alternative to war, but rather, in fact, have the real risk of imposing indiscriminate harms on civilian populations in ways that would be prohibited under the laws of war. And so therefore, actually, if anything, are put in greater jeopardy, the principle of humanity than many other forms of uh, coercion might, even though those alternative forms of coercion may well be prohibited under the UN Charter or under other forms of international law. And so the argument wasn't that we should resort, of course, to armed force or military coercion against countries, but rather we should desist from the fantasy that imposing sanctions was somehow an humane alternative and pursue other foreign policy tools altogether, namely in the area of diplomacy and persuasion, rather than coercion. Right. You know, we put forth a lot of prudential considerations as well about the counterintuitive sort of boomerang effect of sanctions. The fact that in many instances, as in the case in Iran, the broad sanctions regimes that are imposed unilaterally by countries and particularly by the United States are pursued because of the objective of regime change. And that in fact, the effect of sanctions instead is to produce a rally around the flag effect to actually entrench the control of the regime over the civilian population, which becomes more and more dependent on government resources to compensate for a lack of imported foodstuffs and so forth. So there is that set of you know prudential considerations that actually undermines the objective that's stated in the case of unilateral sanctions by a country like the United States, namely regime change. And then also we wanted to point out that there's a real temptation to overuse sanctions because One of the reasons that they have become such a privileged tool of liberal foreign policy, if you like, is that it's very difficult to sort of make real to a domestic public in the country that's imposing sanctions, the indiscriminate harms that are being produced by those sanctions. And so it becomes easier and easier to resort to sanctions when there's a logic of do something versus do nothing, the kind of binary notion that there's a bad actor in the world, for example, an abusive regime that's violating human rights and that countries that believe in supporting human rights ought to act in some way to end those abuses. It's very easy for that logic to give way to the imposition of sanctions, even sanctions that impose 
massive humanitarian harms on the civilian population whose human rights is purportedly being protected by these actions or the goal of the actions is to improve the human rights situation in the country. In fact, the human rights situation in the country is dramatically exacerbated by sanctions. But there are a couple of features of sanctions that make it difficult to sort of desist from their use for governments that impose that sanctions on these logics. The first is sanctions impose no concomitant risk to the civilian population of the country imposing the sanctions. And so there's not going to be a basis to mobilize civilians, for example, in the United States. There's not going to be a public outcry as a consequence of the harms being imposed here domestically as a result of the sanctions. And secondly, as I already mentioned, it's also difficult to articulate exactly what the harm is, the degree of causal responsibility that the United States or other actors might have for the suffering of a civilian population in a targeted country when there's also a series of other you know, compounding elements like the fact that there is an abusive regime in power, the fact that that country may have very serious corruption, et cetera. And so it's easy to basically elide the consequences of the sanctions by just suggesting that the, all of the harms that are being perpetuated against the civilian population in the targeted country are the responsibility solely of the regime. And that so this logic was very clear in the Trump administration, where the more Iranian people suffered, the more the Trump administration officials like Secretary of State at the time, uh, Mike Pompeo, would point to the Iranian government itself as responsible for that suffering, even as many in the international community, including allies of the United States in Europe, were pointing to the direct effect of U.S. sanctions, including secondary sanctions, on specifically exacerbating the consequences of the pandemic in Iran. So all of this is really, in some ways, just a toxic brew on our argument, which really imposes massive humanitarian consequences on civilian populations while applying almost no accountability, whether in terms of international law, which we're going to turn to in a moment, or in terms of what domestic publics might demand of the government imposing those sanctions. And so it really is a kind of obscuring of the civilian harms that are being caused by a foreign policy tool that makes that tool so much more dangerous. Interesting. So there is a sort of paradox, right, that you, you know, you suggest here that regardless of what the purpose of the sanctions are, so whether the purpose is as extreme as regime change, which we'll come back to as being potentially illegitimate on its face, but even those sanctions being imposed by countries that are champions of human rights, there's this counterproductivity to the sanctions in that they are counterproductive to whatever purpose happens to be underlining the sanctions. So if it's regime change, you're suggesting that it actually hardens the hardliners or entrenches the hardliners, strengthens their position. So it's actually not achieving the, the regime change. And if it's enforcement of human rights, it's actually causing greater humanitarian harm to the population within the target country than the human rights violations that are the cause of the sanctions. So I mean, in terms of the empirical research that's been done into the effectiveness of sanctions and the, the question of whether they are, in fact, counterproductive, is there a pretty clear picture now since this research began with the Iraq sanctions in the 1990s about the extent to which sanctions are effective or counterproductive? There is empirical work that political scientists have done on this question, and I take it that we can link to things we might want to link to a couple of those studies on your site. But there are a couple of basic sort of empirical findings. The first is that sanctions that are designed to achieve a particular policy end that are supposed to be tailored specifically to that policy end, if that policy end has not been achieved, if there hasn't been a rollback of whatever it is that are the actions that are targeted, 
within the first three years of the imposition of sanctions, the likelihood of those sanctions to ever be effective with respect to that policy outcome diminishes to near zero. So that's one important sort of empirical observation. Another is the just amount of empirical evidence we now have of the humanitarian consequences that we meant, that I mentioned at the beginning. I mean, it really is overwhelming, the direct relationship, even though, again, it's difficult to disaggregate the causal link between specific sanctions versus bad policies by particular governments. Not, notwithstanding this difficulty, it is now possible to say that there has been clear empirical demonstration of the adverse humanitarian consequences. And this is obviously the clearest in the case of Iraq. As you mentioned, from the 1990s, there was 13 years to document the consequences of those sanctions, and they were indeed devastating. And, and despite that, and again, this was perhaps the one that had the most public visibility. There was the most involvement of international organizations because the Security Council was involved in the imposition of those sanctions in documenting the harms. And so it was available to domestic publics in the United States and the UK and elsewhere, this empirical record. And yet again, it remained too inchoate to occasion serious consequences domestically for the consequence, for the effects of the sanctions, the humanitarian effects. And I mean, here we're talking about public acknowledgement in the US by senior officials of, for example, the UNICEF figure that half a million Iraqi children had been killed. That wasn't sufficient to occasion a backlash against the sanctions, sufficient to alter their character. There was mass revolt within the United Nations and so on. And so anyway, we have empirical information across a range of cases, but the Iraqi case remains exemplary in both establishing the direct causal link between the sanctions and the level of humanitarian deprivation and starvation conditions that emerged in Iraq and the failure of those consequences to trigger a change in policy. Right. And most recently, I think, I mean, Human Rights Watch and others have indicated that in the past year, American sanctions in Iran can be directly linked to increased death rates in Iran from the pandemic. Is that right? That's right. And there have also been documentation of specific numbers of civilian deaths associated with the U.S. sanctions imposed on Venezuela. There was a study done that 40,000 civilian deaths directly tied to sanctions between 2018 and 2020. So these are very high numbers. I mean, if we were talking about 40,000 civilians or half a million children killed as a consequence of a U.S. military engagement, that would occasion very serious scrutiny, including of the question of whether war crimes had been committed. And yet when we're in a peacetime regime, as is the case in both the Iran sanctions and the Venezuela sanctions, the idea that there isn't a comparable level of scrutiny or standards to be imposed, specifically invoking human rights, to impose at least a regulatory regime, if not a prohibition of comprehensive sanctions, is remarkable. All right. Well, we'll turn to the lawfulness and questions of law in a moment. But before we get to that, just from a like, sort of normative perspective, I mean, how is it that you think about sort of this, these competing imperatives and whether they can be reconciled in the sense that on the one hand, we do think of sanctions as a way of enforcing humanitarian and human rights law? to achieve human rights objectives. And yet it appears that often those sanctions are counterproductive and cause the very harms that we're trying to prevent. And so in your mind, can they ever be reconciled? Or is it just the case that sanctions is just not the right tool that we should be using to try to enforce human rights law? Sanctions may be an overbroad term for answering that question. So there are different kinds of sanctions. I think the comprehensive embargoes right. that were really the focus of the piece that we wrote in the Boston Review, so the kinds of sanctions that we currently impose on Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, Cuba, and Syria, 
These kinds of sanctions, to my mind, can never be justified on human rights or humanitarian grounds. Uh, it's just an oxymoron to imagine that you can impose comprehensive sanctions on a country without directly harming its civilian population. And so if the goal, if the policy goal has to do with human rights or humanitarianism, you simply cannot justify imposing means that themselves compromise the very thing you purport to protect. So there, I think there can be no basis whatsoever for comprehensive sanctions as a moral or normative matter for the purposes of enforcing human rights or humanitarian law. And I'm happy to discuss that further as a matter of law as well. But I mean, I think as a normative matter, that should be very, very clear. Right. And then, you know, there are a range of other kinds of sanctions that are purportedly more targeted. And here, I think there are really important obligations, again, at least as a normative matter. And I believe that there is real emergence of consensus around this as a legal matter as well. So, for example, the obligation to undertake ex-ante human rights impact assessments to determine whether particular sanctions that are being imposed are likely to have an adverse effect on the human rights and humanitarian welfare of a civilian population, even if those sanctions are short of a comprehensive embargo, and then undertaking an analysis of what is the policy goal that's being pursued again, especially if it's a human rights related one. If there is any likelihood of compromising the access of a civilian population to necessary, let's call them minimum core economic, social, and cultural rights, such as access to foodstuffs, water, sanitation, medicines, if there's going to be any impact on those access urgent requirements for human survival, again, I think even more targeted sanctions cannot be justified. But so long as you undertake that ex ante and then continuous human rights impact assessment, I think it's conceivable that there might be sanctions that could be properly tailored, particularly those kinds of sanctions that target especially or exclusively military technologies, military transfers, military assistance, or civilian regime officials in ways that are personalized to that person and are related to a direct, at least, allegation of intentional wrongdoing on the part of that person rather than simply the category of the office that they hold. But, you know, again, we can talk about that maybe in a little bit more detail in a moment. But one thing I would note is that in calling for human rights impact assessments, I am not suggesting that humanitarian waivers or writing sanctions packages that purport to exempt or offer licenses for particular kinds of stuffs would be sufficient. Because we have seen over and over again that in the case of sanctions that in any way impact the free access to foodstuffs and medicines in particular, simply writing in waivers or exemptions while putting in place an embargo that threatens anybody who engages in trade with the target is not going to be sufficient, will not fill the gap, and will nonetheless preside over a humanitarian catastrophe. And so those human rights impact assessments would have to be a holistic look at what the effect is and what the effectiveness is of the sanctions as written. And if it turns out that a humanitarian waiver is insufficient and is nonetheless producing adverse human rights impacts, then that fails the test of a permissible sanctions regime, on my view, from a human rights perspective. And just so we understand that last point, and just unpack it a bit, when you say the waivers typically fail, what I'm understanding is that companies, for example, that are engaged in trade with the target country are not going to engage in trade even amongst the waived goods precisely because they're worried about running afoul of the regime and being punished by the sanctioning state, in this case, the United States. That's right. I mean, and there are a couple of ways this operates. So if we're talking about, you know, a comprehensive sanctions regime that imposes secondary sanctions, that is an enormously complicated set of arrangements. But just to be clear, and, and maybe there are a few points I'd like to make here. The first is just returning to the Boston Review piece, the deep perversity 
of secondary sanctions in the context of a sanctions regime like the one that the United States has imposed on Iran. The United States, as I mean, everybody knows, but I'll just review this history briefly, entered into the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action together with Iran, EU countries, Russia, and China. That came to an agreement over Iran's nuclear program, and in exchange for a set of measures that Iran was required to undertake and did undertake, Iranian government was given sanctions relief, and there was supposed to be the lifting of a set of sanctions. This agreement was backstopped by UN Security Council Resolution 2231 of 2015 that supported the implementation of this plan. So it's a plan that is an international agreement into which the United States entered and that's backed by a Security Council resolution. And the United States withdrew from that, notwithstanding Iranian compliance. So the United States both violated the terms of the agreement on its face and violated the terms of the Security Council resolution supporting that agreement, and then reimposed sanctions, again, in violation of its own international law obligations, and then imposed secondary sanctions requiring all the other parties, the parties that remained in compliance with the agreement, with the Security Council resolution, to comply not with the established international law obligations and the Security Council, but rather with U.S. unilateral foreign policy goals. And they did this, they conscripted these other countries, notwithstanding the fact that these countries openly and on the record directly objected to the U.S. foreign policy position. They had entered into an international agreement with the United States that the U.S. was violating. They opposed the reimposition of sanctions on Iran. They acknowledged Iran's continuing compliance with the agreement, and they continued to support through the U.N. Security Council the continuation of that agreement. So UN Security Council permanent members, veto-wielding members, together with other countries, were forced by the United States through a coercive regime, economic coercion of secondary sanctions, to comply at risk themselves of losing access to U.S. financial markets. So first of all, that's the, the perversity of these comprehensive sanctions in the case of Iran. They are in support of a U.S. policy that itself was in violation of international agreements that the United States had entered into and a Security Council resolution. And it coerced the other parties to the agreement to support the United States position that they all were on record politically, diplomatically and legally as opposing. This conscription happens because of the position of the United States in the international financial system. Cutting off countries from U.S. banking is, in effect, cutting off those countries from their ability to engage in regular trade and financial transactions themselves, and more importantly, private parties from those countries, so companies, as you mentioned in your, in your comments, would be cut off from their ability to engage in transactions that involve United States financial institutions because of the sort of interlocking nature of the international financial order, this would in effect just cut them off from international financial transactions altogether to core. And so, of course, companies are not going to take that risk. But it's not just companies that are not going to take that risk. NGOs cannot take that risk. International multilateral organization cannot take that risk. Humanitarian aid agencies cannot take that risk. The risk of being cut off this way as a consequence of U.S. secondary sanctions means that any of these entities, humanitarian organizations, aid agencies, NGOs, risk not only their activities, let's say in a country like Iran, but their activities anywhere in the world where they might be engaging in famine relief operations in completely different countries, let's say in the Tigray region, for example. So are they going to trade their ability to support civilian populations in need of urgent humanitarian assistance everywhere worldwide in order to stand on principle that the humanitarian waiver should, over time, as it's litigated, ultimately apply to their activity with respect to Iran, of course, they're not going to take that risk. And so the challenge is that those waivers don't work at all because the fear 
of being deemed out of compliance with the regime is so intense and the cost would be so great, especially to humanitarian actors, that they impose a further set of harms beyond the direct harm on the targeted state, namely Iran, on multilateral organizations, on purported U.S. allies like those in in Europe that are objecting to this policy and yet are required and conscripted by the United States to support it private actors, and critically humanitarian organizations. And this is not only in the case of something like Iran. What about terrorism designations by the United States, which themselves also bring the threat of sanctions with them? The fear of being designated as an entity that's offering material support to a terrorist organization is impeding the ability of humanitarian agencies and aid organizations to access any number of countries the world over where there are serious conflicts because providing support to a civilian population, which itself may be under the terrifying reign of a terrorist organization, but the difficulty of disaggregating who is responsible and who is supporting and not means that humanitarian aid is effectively cut off from all of those places where civilians are most endangered because of the threat that sanctions for engaging in supposedly material support activities produces. And so whether it's humanitarian assistance to a place like Gaza, whether it's humanitarian assistance in uh, northern Syria, whether it's humanitarian assistance in any number of countries where a designated terrorist organization may be operating, that too is made almost impossible, again, as a result of the material support sort of of legal concepts that the United States has introduced and is imposing through, again, a web of secondary sanctions. All right. So this brings us to the big question, which is whether sanctions are lawful, or I guess, to be more specific, whether in certain circumstances, one might be able to argue that economic sanctions are unlawful. And so leaving aside the UN Security Council authorized sanctions for now, and just focusing on so-called autonomous or unilateral sanctions, those sanctions imposed with no sort of higher international law authority, the law on whether those kinds of sanctions are lawful seems really, unfortunately, unsettled. And so we can sort of walk through the different grounds one might base arguments of unlawfulness on. And I think the first might be coercion, right? The first issue is whether such sanctions constitute coercive efforts to change domestic policy and thus are unlawful intervention. But I think the real differences are what constitutes coercion, right? I mean, one of the big questions is what is coercive and when could economic sanctions rise to the level of being coercive. Do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, famously, the definition of the use of force under the UN Charter excludes economic coercion of any kind from understanding of an armed attack. To begin with, for something to constitute a use of force, it has to involve an armed attack. And this was a deliberate choice. And overall, there have been numerous iterations of a specific debate around this question of whether coercion should encompass economic coercion from that time, from the late 1940s to the present, where we see countries of the global south in particular systematically returning to the argument that economic coercion is a form of intervention and is a form of, should be deemed an impermissible form of coercion in international law. And opposition to this definition, generally speaking, from countries in the global north, and notably, most importantly, perhaps, from the United States. And so this debate remains, as you say, unsettled by, of course, any sort of numerical account, the number of states in the international system that deem economic coercion to be at least subject to significant regulation, if not prohibition. The vast majority of states in the international system view economic coercion in this way, but not the United States. 
And of course, we live in a system of customary international law where if you have a important proportion of affected states that resist a particular definition, even if they are a minority and even if they're a systematic minority, nonetheless, a broadly accepted principle cannot become or cannot be deemed to have become customary international law. And so we're at this impasse with respect to economic coercion. Although I would say that the sort of trend, I think, overall over time is in the direction increasingly of recognizing at least some forms of economic coercion as subject to increasing regulation and increasingly intrusive regulation. Yeah, I mean, this seems to be really sort of paradoxical that these countries, as you have said, have resisted and rejected any notion that economic sanctions could constitute coercion or could be an unlawful intervention. And yet when it comes to cyber operations and thinking about the extent to which USAD Bellum should apply to cyber operations, France most recently and other Western states, as you say, the, the global North countries that have resisted any efforts to classify economic sanctions as coercion are saying that cyber operations that have a sufficiently grave impact on the economy may not only be constitute a use of force in, in violation of Article 24 of the Charter, but may constitute an armed attack triggering Article 51 rights of self-defense and therefore the use of force in response. And so you have this bizarre sort of sense that strangling a country's economy slowly through sanctions is legitimate and lawful. But doing so suddenly with, with cyber operations is somehow an act of aggression that triggers a right of self-defense. I mean, it just seems bizarre. Yeah. I mean, there's an obvious inconsistency, but I think we, if we step back, we can at least make sense of the sort of political context that makes sense of this. Yes. So sanctions of the kind that we've discussed really are depend on significant asymmetries between countries. So the imposition, especially of a comprehensive embargo, is typically only possible when a country that is both not in and of itself sufficiently powerful to ward off this kind of effort and also doesn't have the means itself to resist. In other words, it doesn't have the capacity to function economically in an autarkic fashion. It doesn't have sufficient control itself over the global financial order to be able to maintain transactions through alternative means, etc. Only these kinds of countries can be targeted with this form of sanction. So it's essentially a weapon of the strong. Right. And it is especially a weapon to which very powerful countries are completely impervious. And therefore, their need or desire to seriously think about the degree of harm that may be associated with these forms of economic coercion is vastly diminished because they will never face these forms of economic coercion themselves. So there's no likelihood that the United States will ever face a comprehensive embargo or a set of sanctions, since indeed it is at the very heart of the global financial order. And there's no way, as we saw after 2008, the financial crisis that the United States and the rest of the world underwent, the idea of too big to fail is one that became widely popularized with respect to Western banking organizations, lending organizations, but it's obviously even more true of the system as a whole and the heart of that system in the United States. So the U.S. economy is completely impervious to this form of coercion. And as a result, the United States and the United States, moreover, is able to impose this kind of coercion at will and is, in fact, the country most likely to impose unilateral sanctions of the kind that we've been discussing. So, of course, it has absolutely no incentive to allow regulation, let alone prohibition, of these activities that it, it chooses to maintain as part of its own arsenal. And that's the thing that we critiqued in the Boston Review article, noting why, for normative reasons and even for prudential reasons, given that the United States doesn't have any other actor in the international system that can hold it to account for the use of this foreign policy tool, 
there needs to be a kind of domestic development of a constituency to oppose this and to push the United States in a different direction than its own foreign policy choices. Right. But the argument we made was directed at American audiences and the U.S. government because there's no other party. By contrast with cyber operations, what we're seeing is the emergence of something that at least runs the real risk of becoming a weapon of the weak, right? It may well be state-sponsored, and it may well be sponsored by states that are major adversaries of the United States, but it could equally be a technology and a set of capacities that would be available to non-state actors, to actors within much weaker states. It could, in fact, level the playing field in some ways around the world of economic coercion, like who has the capacity to impose serious economic harm without engaging in an armed attack or without engaging in any form of kinetic attack. That question has now become much more open. And as a result, what we see is a completely, you know, again, asymmetric and ultimately logically unsustainable distinction being drawn between one set of actions that have that impose very significant economic harm deliberately and another set of actions, one of which is being treated as if it were an armed attack, or at least arguments, serious arguments are being promulgated in the global north and in the law journals of the United States. Within the United States, there are you know, legal scholars that have made this argument that cyber attacks that impose, let's say, tremendous economic harms may and indeed should be brought within the scope of Article 2.4. That argument has been made for at least a decade now. Right. And I think the you know, sort of drumbeat is increasingly in that direction. But of course, if we were to move in that direction, I think it would certainly strengthen the hands of those who would say globally, and now I mean states, not just scholars and other actors, but states that would say any recognition of a form of economic coercion as falling within the scope of Article 2.4 would then open the door to a very serious consideration of much greater regulation slash prohibition of use of economic sanctions than at least those that may have a comparably massive economic effect on the targeted state. Interesting. So in a sense, you know, we have the escalating trends, right? So as you pointed out, I mean, the, the global South has been pushing the argument for a, a very long time that economic sanctions constitutes coercion and therefore unlawful intervention. But that, that effort seems to have been ratcheted up in the last couple of decades. Venezuela has famously filed a complaint, uh, a claim with the ICC alleging that the American sanctions regime constitutes crimes against humanity. At the same time, under the Trump administration, unilateral sanctions were sort of ramped up and were like on steroids in the extent to which they were being implemented in ways that even, as you said earlier, American allies were objecting to. And then you have these trends within the realm of cyber operations, and you said, Balam, and it just seems that we're heading for some kind of reckoning of how these sort of trends in opposite directions are going to be reconciled. Do you have any predictions? Predictions, as I said, I think a lot of what has happened at the UN and General Assembly resolutions, et cetera, which express increasing opposition to this use of comprehensive sanctions is lex veranda. So it's, it's future oriented, but it's, in, I mean, there's certainly an emergence of enormous volume of soft law and evidence that the, as I've said previously, the numerical majority of states and a growing numerical majority of states opposes the use of these kinds of unilateral comprehensive sanctions. And I just want to make one note. This has, in fact, accelerated over the last couple of decades, as you point out, on the side of those who oppose sanctions. And there's a real reason for that. It's only in the post-Cold War period that we see this kind of comprehensive sanction becoming possible in the post-World War II international legal order. During the Cold War, if the United States wanted to impose significant sanctions on a country, say Cuba, that country had a real alternative for trade, for engagement, for supplies, etc. And it was that sort of bipolar character of the system that meant that 
resort to mass comprehensive economic sanctions was less frequent because they were less effective in the set effective, not in the sense of achieving the policy goal because they remain, they were ineffective then, they're ineffective now with respect to achieving policy goals like regime change very broad policy goals to which sanctions are not at all well tailored, but ineffective in the sense of not actually choking off the country because the country had a continuing alternative block. We may, first of all, be moving again in a direction where this is true, right? Right, where we have the emergence not only of China, which is, of course, much storied and is oftentimes there's a lot of wringing of hands at the moment, in, at least in U.S. academic circles about what the implications of this are for the international legal order, But actually, it's not just China. I mean, there's also Europe attempting to develop a different, for example, investment vehicle for Iran as part of its resistance to the imposition of secondary sanctions. I mean, of course, extremely primitive, very limited, having no effect in the case of actual instex. But nonetheless, it's an indication of of a desire to sort of displace the dollar hegemony that enables the United States to impose these kinds of comprehensive sanctions on friends and foes. Um, foes, right, are the targets of the sanctions, but friends are coerced into supporting sanctions that they, as a matter of foreign policy, do not, in fact, politically support, but their private companies are targeted in the ways that we've already discussed. So already you see a set of developments a few decades into a unipolar order in which, first of all, the unipolarity of that order may be giving way to something else. I'm not in the business of predictions, but some degree of multipolarity is already in evidence and China's willingness to develop alternative trade protocols, the possibility of using its currency, perhaps other investment vehicles, Belt and Road. I mean, there are a lot of things that suggest that countries may once again, as they did in the Cold War, have some alternatives that will enable them to escape the fully comprehensive nature of the kinds of unilateral sanctions that the United States has imposed. And then resistance amongst U.S. allies to continuing to being conscripted can be added to the ledger together with the General Assembly resolutions, the obvious presence of a numerical majority of countries that believe that this kind of unilateral, what they would deem economic coercion, should at least be subject to various kinds of regulation, not least human rights limitations. All of this, I think, suggests that going forward, if we were having this conversation two decades from now, we would probably be in a somewhat different international legal framework than we are today. Right now, I think I would argue that there are indeed legal grounds for limiting the kinds of comprehensive embargoes that the United States and other countries perhaps, but I'm mostly focused on the United States, elects to impose, particularly those that come with secondary sanctions that then really choke off a country from the capacity to access international finance and trade, and that the United States may well be in violation of international law in in its current conduct. But I think a couple of decades from now, we'll see a consolidation, most likely, of stronger norms that are less contested in this area. Okay. So let's let's unpack that a bit more. As you say, you think there are some grounds for saying that the United States and others who engage in unilateral or autonomous sanctions are in violation of the law. I mean, unlawful intervention isn't that promising a ground since it's quite unsettled. But let's turn to human rights. And again, there seems to be a bit of an irony or, or a paradox here in that As we've talked about economic sanctions of of the kind that we're talking about here, autonomous and broad-based embargoes cause humanitarian harm, even if they are sometimes motivated by trying to enforce human rights law. And yet human rights law itself doesn't provide that strong of a basis for saying that those sanctions are unlawful. And particularly, there are these questions of whether human rights obligations extend extraterritorially, whether countries have obligations in relation to the rights of the people within the targeted state. What are your thoughts on that? 
so a couple of things. One set of arguments are just about what is the status of starvation specifically? And I think that might be a useful place to start. So is there a prohibition on starvation either under humanitarian law, so the laws of war, or under international rights law, peacetime law? I have acknowledged that this, some of this is contested. There's some debate about the extent of the prohibition in both circumstances. But I think that I would argue that we are in a universe now where there is widespread exception of the idea that starvation, intentional use of starvation against civilians as a method of warfare under international armed conflict has been criminalized under the Rome Statute as prohibited. And that under non-international armed conflict, that there is quite a bit in the additional protocol, the second additional protocol, that again suggests that there is a sort of comprehensive limitation on the ability to use starvation as a deliberate policy in the context of armed conflict. Okay, so we can return to both of those propositions. That would be of interest. But the question they give rise to is, if we have a set of prohibitions in wartime that say that civilians must be protected to the extent that they have access to the necessary food, medical supplies, and other goods for the survival of the civilian population, that this right of access is protected by the laws of war, humanitarian law. What could be the possible argument to suggest that civilians don't enjoy at least the same degree of protection in peacetime under international human rights law? Logically, I think there's a real problem with imagining a world, an international legal order that affords greater protection to civilian basic right to subsistence in life in context of war than it does in context of peace, just as a preliminary matter, logically. But I think we should, if we accept the characterization I've provided of international armed conflict, the law of international armed conflict and the law of non-international armed conflict, then we might turn to the question of international human rights law and what analogous protections there may be, at least against starvation, or what I would describe as violations of the minimum core of economic, social rights that have been recognized as a matter of international human rights law. And here I mean access to food, water, sanitation, and medicines. And I believe that, by the way, the definition of starvation incorporates all four of these aspects, that it's not simply the sort of literal dying of lack of access to food and water, but it is actually the imperiling of the very fundamental access to the essential goods necessary for human survival. And also, I should say, just as a definitional matter, that starvation, I think, here in international law doesn't require actual death. Uh, and it should be understood, and here I'm following Tom Dannenbaum in this description, it should be understood as a process and not an outcome. And therefore, levels of malnutrition, deprivation that are likely to induce death are connected to conditions that could imperil survival would be encompassed. So with this definition of starvation, the question is, is there a prohibition on the use of starvation as a policy that deliberately targets civilians under international human rights law? And I think if understood in these right terms, I would argue that there is general international law that does impose a limit on unilateral sanctions that rise to the level of depriving a people of, its, of the means of subsistence and threatening it with starvation. And I think that there might be the way I've just framed the proposition may be somewhat unfamiliar. I actually think that if we were to look closely at the UN Charter, at the requirements of the International Bill of Rights, that is the ICCPR and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, the commentary of the relevant human rights bodies, the Human Rights Committee, the ICCPR Committee, and the Economic and Social Rights Committee. And if we were to look at the you know, sort of understanding of even crimes against humanity under the Rome Statute, that taking all of these things together, 
uh, widespread systematic violations of fundamental human rights that give rise to conditions of starvation would qualify as violations of existing international law as presently constituted. Now, given the definition I've provided of starvation, while this is certainly an extreme circumstance that would not apply to many sanctions regimes, I do think actually that there is an argument to be made that general blockades or the kinds of comprehensive embargoes that the United States has imposed that are supported by secondary sanctions may well rise to generating levels of deprivation that could satisfy the definition I've just provided. So I do think, at a minimum, I think there's a regulatory regime provided by international human rights law governing the use of comprehensive sanctions and limiting them with general international law provisions for the protection of the core human rights de minimis necessary for human survival. So as a regulatory regime, and I think maybe even more strongly, one could say that there is even a prohibition. So to sum this up and to make the point, if it can be established that a comprehensive sanctions regime is inducing starvation conditions, by which I mean producing malnutrition, limiting civilian access to clean water and sanitation, and depriving a population of essential medicines, then I think a case can be made that it's prohibited under existing international human rights law. Interesting. And so we were earlier talking about these waivers and exemptions, exceptions, limitations that have been increasingly imposed on economic sanctions for purposes of carving out food, medicine, and necessities, humanitarian necessities. And in line with what you've just said, I mean, is it possible to argue that this practice, this increasing state practice of including these kinds of limitations and exceptions, or even having human rights impact study requirements, is giving rise to new principles of customary international law that limit the scope of permissible or lawful economic sanctions. So that's what I'm arguing, right? So for example, let's take the right to life under the ICCPR. We say that uh, there's now a quite expansive definition that's been provided by the Human Rights Committee in its General Comment 36, that this has a lot of affirmative obligations attached to it, including the obligation to protect a population from starvation. Now the question is, do these extend extraterritorially, et cetera? But what's critical here to think about first, I mean, just an answer to your question is, are there principles here that are developing that produce this kind of regulatory effect? The committee held that it's important to understand whether the actions by that are, you know, sort of preventing the population from accessing the necessary means to avoid starvation. So there's a prohibition, let's say, under General Comment 36, states have to do everything necessary to protect from starvation. That's an extension of the right to life, at least within their territory. And the actions that they take have to have, I mean, the condition here is that, is there a direct and reasonably foreseeable manner in which actions may be impacting the ability of populations to access necessary means for avoiding starvation? Okay, so this idea of direct and foreseeably reasonable manner and the definition that I provided earlier that suggests that if economic sanctions breach the rule that states should not threaten the starvation of the people of another state, that's the sort of basic prohibition that I'm suggesting exists. The question wouldn't be just, are they doing it deliberately to affect the civilian population? And what, you know, so that would obviously be prohibited in the rule that I announced. But in addition, it's, is there a direct and reasonably foreseeable manner in which the actions they're taking might nonetheless have that effect, even if that's one of several effects, even if it's not the sole purpose of the sanctions? And of course, in the case of the kinds of unilateral sanctions we've been talking about, their sole purpose is certainly not 
to induce civilian starvation. But if it is a directly and reasonably foreseeable consequence, does that give rise to human rights obligations? My argument is, for example, under the Human Rights Committee's General Comment 36, it does. And so what then to make of these waivers and other things? The question is, everything now falls, if we agree on the standard I've described, to basically an empirical inquiry. So let me step back to try to clarify what I'm saying. First, I think the idea today that we need to have these waivers and that we should have human rights impact assessments, et cetera, already is clearly indicative of a regulatory regime around these sanctions, that there's human rights law that speaks to these sanctions. But I'm also saying that that's not quite enough because we have such a substantial empirical record of waivers not enabling a population to escape the worst of the humanitarian consequences of sanctions. And even an ex-ante human rights impact assessment may not be sufficient to guarantee, in fact, that a sanctions regime is not imperiling the ability of the population to have just its, sustain its basic humanitarian welfare. As a result, I think given that broad empirical record, it is directly and reasonably foreseeable that comprehensive sanctions will threaten the underlying rights of a population in the target country and require more than simply the invocation of pro forma actions such as waivers or ex-ante assessments. I think they also generate an obligation of continuing assessment and what the actual effect of sanctions are on the ground. So if you accept, if one accepts the sort of picture I've given of international rights law as having this predatory function of actually prohibiting states from imposing starvation conditions on the civilian population of a target country, if that is impermissible under human rights law, then everything after that is an empirical inquiry, everything that flows from that. So first of all, we have to agree on a definition of what constitutes starvation. I've suggested a definition. If that definition is being met, then either the sanctions must be immediately lifted or they have to be modified to stop that from happening. And then the question of what modification is sufficient, again, is an empirical inquiry, but certainly there's no rule that would say a humanitarian waiver, et cetera, is sufficient because the empirical record shows us that it is entirely foreseeable that comprehensive sanctions regimes, even when they incorporate humanitarian waivers, and even after the country that is unilaterally imposing those sanctions attests to their you know, human rights bona fides or their intentions not to harm the civilian population, we have seen time and again that the humanitarian welfare of the civilian population has been directly and irreparably harmed. And as a result, the obligation, the regulatory obligation is greater than simply even waivers or ex-ante human rights impact assessments, although both of those things I think are de minimis necessary on my reading of international human rights law at present, not just lex ferende about a future rule concerning economic coercion, but in the here and now, what does international human rights law tell us about the ways in which the international community ought to and should and can regulate and impose consequences under international law for countries that violate international human rights obligations connected to the imposition of comprehensive sanctions if and when they threaten starvation conditions. Interesting. So I would like to circle back to your reference to humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict, because, I mean, I think it, it really is. Again, there, there are these ironies and paradoxes throughout this discussion, but there is this real apparent irony that international humanitarian law prohibits the starvation of civilian populations. In fact, it's a war crime to take action that would cause the starvation of civilian populations to lay siege. As a matter of IHL and even use ad bellum, right? Blockades under use ad bellum constitutes a use of force and in violation of prohibition on the use of force. And so both legal regimes that govern armed conflict and war, broadly speaking, would view 
the conduct that is undertaken in broad-based economic sanctions embargoes as being unlawful. And yet in times of peace, we somehow view this to be lawful, legitimate, even laudable form of enforcement of international law. I mean, how are we to think about that relationship? And how should that inform how we think about the lawfulness of sanctions? I would start by saying that I think, again, that one of the regrettable things about the term sanctions is it encompasses so much. Right. So this idea that they're laudable and humane derives from the view that they're sort of narrowly tailored, that they accomplish an effect without resorting to armed attack, et cetera. But these ways of conceiving of sanctions as laudable depend on two things. One, a context in which they are narrow and they're primarily bilateral. And so it is a sort of imposition of consequences that might be seen as countermeasures or retorsions in international law for wrongdoing by an abusive regime. So let's say a human rights abusing regime acts badly and another country says, well, I'm free to desist from engaging in trade with you and I'm going to use that because this is a way I can use one of the tools at my disposal short of threats of use of force to try to occasion a change of behavior. So there's that conceptual model, which is very distinct from the comprehensive sanctions regimes, coercive secondary sanctions, et cetera, that we've been discussing. And then the second is the anomalous example of the regime of sanctions imposed on South Africa. Right. And the story that is told internationally of this laudable and effective approach that gradually ratcheted up sanctions until finally the you know apartheid government agreed to a negotiated transfer. It's anomalous in so many different ways. But the principle, I think, most important anomaly here is that that was a set of sanctions that was imposed, indeed, very gradually through the United Nations and in the teeth of opposition from the powerful states that today are the principal architects of coercive sanctions worldwide. And as a consequence, the real outcome of those sanctions was opprobrium, stigmatization. It put all kinds of pressure on the white South African apartheid government, but what it did not do is impose starvation conditions of any kind on the South African population. Moreover, of course, famously, the sanctions were supported by civil society in South Africa. The victims of the regime in the South African case were very clearly categorized by the South Africans themselves and were politically mobilized and voiced support for sanctions. But these sanctions bear no relationship to the comprehensive embargoes that are today being imposed unilaterally by the United States. And so the association of the word sanctions with laudable goals and narrowly tailored practices is totally out of keeping with the actual practice of at least one very powerful actor in the international system and generates confusion. So I just wanted to start there because that... Right. No, I think that's, that's really important. Yeah. Then turning, of course, to the laws of war, what explains this incredibly incongruous result is that the kinds of comprehensive embargoes we're seeing are a relatively recent practice for the reasons I pointed to earlier, Cold War, et cetera. It's a post-Cold War sort of itself unique, maybe even anomalous period of decades in which a single country could, to this extent, through its unilateral policies, not resorting to multilateral organizations, not even persuading other countries of the validity of its position, impose not just bilateral restrictions on trade, but multilateral restrictions in the sense of having all other countries in the international system subjected to their policy preferences of that one country without actually occasioning actual international intergovernmental support. So in the absence of any UN support, and this is, of course, and again, we could return to Iraq sanctions if you want, because that's where it began. It began with a sanctions regime very much supported and ultimately never modified because of U.S. opposition to modifications, U.S. presence on the U.N. Security Council. But nonetheless, it was an intergovernmental sanctions regime that was imposed, non-autonomous, to borrow your language. 
um, since then, these comprehensive sanctions regimes that we're talking about are indeed autonomous in the sense that the U.S. alone is the actor imposing them in many instances, but they're multilateral in the sense that all other countries are coercively required to participate, which in fact chokes off a target state. So that is that is a relatively recent form of civilian peacetime imposition of embargo, comprehensive embargo. And I think part of the reason that we see the disconnect between the regimes under the laws of war and the peacetime regime is that the peacetime regime has not caught up to and is also to some extent hostage to the preferences of the country that has innovated this particular form of embargo. But I do think, as our earlier conversation suggested, that the trend line at present is one that suggest that this will change. This will change because there's been the multilateral character, the secondary sanctions conscripting countries into supporting unilateral American policies has engendered resistance. So that's one source of change. And the increasingly vocal opposition of a very large number of countries that view this as an impermissible kind of, if you want, imperial set of strategies on the part of the United States is another. So there's pressure from below, there's pressure from above in some sense. So we are, I think, going to see some change. And then finally, I would say that I think a proper reading of international human rights law combined with the UN Charter and general principles of international law suggests that the UN Charter requirement that governments act in international cooperation to further the ends of the organization, the ends of the organization encompassing human rights and human rights having a minimum core that requires that no state act in such a way as to threaten, again, on my reading at least, the civilian population of another state with starvation. All of these combine to suggest that there is some at least minimal regulatory framework that ought to be applied. Now, the challenge is it hasn't been applied. And this is a challenge of our international legal order, which is a hegemonic actor like the United States can effectively exempt itself from any consequences, even if it is violating international law. So my claim here is that at least some of these comprehensive sanctions, those that, for example, expose the Iranian civilian population to increased risk and vulnerability in the context of pandemic as a consequence of being deprived of essential medicines or protective equipment, or deprive Venezuelan civilian population of essential foodstuffs to the extent that these are empirical, of course, claims, but to the extent that these empirical claims can be established and these constitute acts of, in my view, starvation properly understood, then there is indeed a regulatory regime that should preclude this and should require these sanctions to be modified so as to avoid these humanitarian consequences. The exceptional character of the position of the United States in the international legal order, coupled with the fact that the United States has innovated this approach to comprehensive sanctions, means that there are two different inquiries, right? One is the normative question or the international law question of what what is the proper reading of the law. And the second is, does this provide resources and practice to generate accountability with respect to the United States? And those are sort of distinct, although as we've seen, Venezuela has attempted to pursue this. Iran, too, before the International Court of Justice, has attempted to pursue the question of accountability against the United States. I think most international lawyers would agree that these efforts are unlikely to result in any meaningful form of accountability. But nonetheless, they're indicative of a sort of idea that states have in the international system, that there are international legal grounds for opposing particular forms of comprehensive sanction that the United States has over the last couple of decades imposed through its own unilateral actions and the secondary sanctions that it has adopted. You know, Dapo Akande and others are coming out with a, an article in the American Journal of International Law later this summer, which appears to take a fairly 
conservative or statist view on the lawfulness of economic sanctions and suggest that there is no human rights basis for suggesting that economic embargoes are unlawful. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I actually have a different reading of their piece. I think it's pretty consistent with the analysis I've provided that to the extent that economic sanctions breach the rule that states should not threaten starvation as the civilian population of a targeted state, then they would be unlawful on my reading of their account of international human rights law. So, I mean, I was surprised actually when I read it at how far they're willing to go. I don't know if they appreciate, I think they must, but like in the end where they land with respect to starvation is that there is a general international law limitation. And they keep saying in extreme circumstances. Right. But, you know, these sanctions regimes are extreme. Right. They're just not unusual. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I don't know if they're... I don't, I don't think they appreciate that. Right. That's the thing. I don't think they have, they're looking at this through the same lens. Right. But they establish a principle that was very comfortably consistent with what I'm saying. And then the only dispute we would have is the empirical question of whether or not that we may have a difference as to when we believe the threshold of starvation would be met, or maybe even the definition of what constitutes an act of starvation under international law. And in my view, as I've already mentioned, it's more expansive and it would include a process approach to starvation. So anything that threatens a population with famine or lack of access to basic sanitation and essential medicines would qualify. But that is an empirical inquiry. But I think the standard that they articulate, that there are circumstances, what they would describe as extreme circumstances, where unilateral sanctions do rise to the level of depriving a people of the means of subsistence and threatening starvation, that threshold is met, then that constitutes a violation of international law. If I have read them correctly, then I believe that we agree on what the actual legal standard is. And then the question is, does it apply? And I think I agree with them again that this would be an extreme circumstance. But what I find is that the comprehensive embargo that the United States has applied in a number of circumstances, they're unusual in the sense that the United States have many other sanctions regimes in place over 30 other countries, just to name the ones that are defined by the Department of the Treasury. But there are only four or five that are really comprehensive, and I've already named the country subject to those. But in those cases, those comprehensive sanctions, which are attached to secondary sanctions, which cut off those countries and their population from trade altogether and finance altogether. And for example, in the case of Venezuela, they themselves point to in the article of statistics and say that the Venezuelan government has lost 99% of its prior revenue stream and that there is extreme malnutrition in the country in many places. If we can agree to those facts and that they are the consequence of the sanctions that have been imposed by the United States, then I would say that that extreme malnutrition spread across an entire population constitutes exactly the kind of extreme circumstance that is at a minimum regulated, which is to say that international human rights law requires that that sanctions regime be altered to avoid that outcome. And given that the outcome is at this time foreseeable and that it has now been empirically documented, possibly also prohibited under international human rights law. And that seems to me consistent with my reading of the position taken by Akande and his co-authors. Fascinating. Now, you mentioned in passing the possibility that economic sanctions could constitute a form of reprisal or countermeasure. We could spend a whole other hour unpacking that, but there is this argument that under certain conditions or circumstances, economic sanctions might constitute countermeasures justified as legitimate reprisals against violations or in response to violations of international obligations by the target state. You have a few words on that to tie up the conversation? I think the one place where you know that really 
shows its limits as a logic is through secondary sanctions, right? Right. Because even if you were to say countermeasures were permissible with respect to the targeted state, the only way that comprehensive embargoes can actually successfully be imposed by the United States is by also targeting a series of third countries against whom no countermeasure or reprisal or retorsion logic applies. And so, right. so with respect to the category of sanctions we've been discussing, namely comprehensive sanctions, I think there can be no argument that the totality of those sanctions, dependent as they are on secondary sanctions, could possibly qualify under countermeasures or retorsion. The other thing that I think is interesting is the sort of brief discussion we had about cyber operations. I mean, what if countries were to adopt the same logic there? How would that be interpreted here in the United States? I mean, the test of the validity of an argument is how one might, you know, interpret it when directed against one's own interests. Uh, and that's one of the big problems, as I've already suggested. There, all of these arguments depend on massive asymmetries in the international system, where the asymmetrically more powerful state determines what is and is not law. Under our rules for the emergence of customary international law, it's the fact that the United States, together with a small handful of other states, withhold, for example, their assent to logics of economic coercion that we can never say that, that, that norms that enjoy soft law support from the vast majority of states have become customary international law. So when we live in an international system of this degree of asymmetry, the powerful actor, which may be the actor that is in fact engaging in wrongdoing, also dictates in many respects how the law changes and what norms can emerge as lawful to constrain its own actions. But imagine a universe in which states expressed that they were going to undertake certain kinds of cyber attacks specifically as a countermeasure or retorsion in response to wrongdoing by the United States because they believe that the United States was acting in an internationally wrongful fashion, for example, with respect to the JCPOA, with respect to its imposition of sanctions in the context of the pandemic, etc. Is there a colorable argument that that action is wrongful and is, you know, in violation of human rights? And I mean, again, this also depends, right? The countermeasure claim with respect to sanctions depends on the notion that a state has an erga omnis obligation in some ways to impo- right. you know, impose consequences for human rights violations. So a state that is engaging in human rights violations against its own citizens may face countermeasures from another state altogether as a consequence of those human rights violations. So that internationally wrongful act affecting others is nonetheless a basis for states to impose countermeasures. And so in that universe, you can well imagine that there's a huge range of countries that believe that the United States is engaging in international wrongful acts that may or may not have consequences directly for their own populations. The logic is dangerous, I think is what I'm trying to point to. And the attaching of this idea of countermeasures to just unilateral decisions about who is a wrongdoer in the international system and who therefore should be exposed to this degree of economic harm, where they're completely cut off from trade and finance globally, the idea that that should lie with a single state, I think, is fundamentally at odds with an international rules-based order. Well, I think that's a, a good note to end on. So thank you so much. But before I let you go, of course, I'm going to ask you if you have three books, articles, readings of some description that you think might be of interest to our readers. Yeah, there are a few things that I would like to recommend. One is a great book on Iraq sanctions by Joy Gordon, which is called The Invisible War, United States and the Iraq Sanctions from Harvard in 2010. What I think is really exciting about this book, uh, what's useful, is to understand the degree of crisis that this intergovernmentally approved UN Security Council imposed sanctions regime generated within the United Nations and the forms of diplomacy that were necessary to prevent these sanctions from being modified or lifted over the course of an enormously long time and huge amounts of empirical documentation of the humanitarian consequences of the sanctions. I think it's not well enough understood. Some people understand that particular 
senior humanitarian officials resigned from their positions and so forth. But the intricate story that Joy Gordon lays out, I think, helps us understand and appreciate where this use of coercive sanctions originated, because this really is the original moment in the post-Cold War period, the role that the United States played and the, the sort of consternation that international lawyers and international actors had from almost the outset about the ways in which these kinds of sanctions are in direct tension with the objectives and purpose of the United Nations as an organization and undermine the organization and indeed involve the organization in commission of what some viewed even at that time as crimes against humanity or genocidal acts. The second one I would really recommend is Alex DeWall's Mass Starvation, The History and Future of Famine, which reminds us specifically around starvation about the ways in which political decisions have been an essential element of every famine on record in the modern era. And that, in fact, to imagine famine as this passive, natural disaster that occurs rather than a purposive, if not always sole purpose, the deliberate action specifically to starve civilians, but a consequence of purposive activity by political actors, and especially increasingly by external actors imposing blockades is a really important story from one of the leading experts on humanitarian crises in the world today, Alex DeWall. So that I also really strongly recommend. Another work I recommend is a chapter by Nicholas Mulder and Boyd Van Dyck titled, Why Did Starvation Not Become the Paradigmatic War Crime in International Law? And it's in a great volume from Oxford University Press this year by Ingo Venska and Kevin John Heller, Contingency in International Law on the Possibility of Different Legal Histories. And what's interesting here is the exploration of how Western powers' reliance on starvation as a means of achieving political and military objectives historically has resulted in the belief that we still live in a legally permissive regime today, and particularly really impeded the development of international humanitarian law in a way that much earlier that would have imposed a a regime of prohibition, which is really a late phenomenon that did not occur with the Geneva Conventions and even remained contested under the additional protocols and has really emerged much more fully today, thanks in part to the sort of more robust international criminal law framework we have and the Rome Statute. But in any case, it's a really fascinating story of who the actors were in the creation of law. And here again, I just want to note that what we're doing at this moment, this conversation, and what happens in international law journals in the United States or in the English language in the United States and Canada and the UK, et cetera, is incredibly important in how the law evolves. And the story that's told here is like a story of the sort of partnership in some ways between international policymakers and powerful capitals and the international lawyers and scholars that basically provide the edifice of legality for those policy preferences, which policy preferences were for a permissive regime of starvation and how long it took to unseat that. And the importance, I think, as a result of the international legal scholarship that's happening today in an attempt to shore up, if you like, the sort of existing international law regulatory and prohibitive regimes that attach to starvation as a tactic. And and here, if you'll permit me, I just want to therefore laud a fourth piece, which is an article, again, from this year by Tom Dannenbaum entitled Encirclement, Deprivation, and Humanity, Revising the San Remo Manual Provisions on Blockade, which looks specifically at naval blockade, which again, while there is a prohibition, it has many, many sort of conditions attached to it that are problematic in ways that Tom lays out. This is in volume 97 of International Law Studies 2021. And he examines why starvation has had a resurgence as a method of war in places like Somalia, South Sudan, Yemen, and elsewhere, 
despite changes in international humanitarian law that have gone from a permissive regime to one of weak regulation to one of prohibition, and really encourages in a kind of lex brande way, if you want, the revision, the current revision that's underway of the San Remo Manual to take account of the shift in international human rights law and the changing international legal context over the last quarter century that really points in the direction of prohibition of starvation of civilians under all circumstances, peacetime and wartime. So I think, although Tom's specific study is of naval blockade, I think it really is a great exposition of the laws of war on this question, how they've evolved, and a great companion piece to the chapter I recommended from the OUP volume. That sounds fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your thoughts and your insights on the broader issues today. This has been fantastic. Thanks so much for having me, Craig. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. And thank you again for all your support over the last year. As I mentioned in the introduction, this wraps up the second season and the first full year of the podcast. We'll be taking a little bit of a break over the rest of the summer, but hope to be back in the fall with the third season. And so if you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, or even ideas of how to improve the format of the podcast, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations today on the website. And keep an eye out for a new feature of the website, which will be devoted to movies that involve the laws of war. If you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at at JibJabPodcast for updates to coming episodes and other commentary. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, take care, have a great summer.